Turn with me to, uh, if you would, to Ezra chapter 9. That's page 390-something. 94, 95, something like that. Ezra 9. I'm just going to be looking at the first six verses today. Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens." Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know how many of you are into Russian literature, or if you're not into Russian literature, maybe you're into avant-garde films. Uh, I've read enough Russian novels. Uh, Grace is kind of slightly obsessed with them, but you know, it takes a special personality to enjoy such things. Uh, because what they seem to all have in common is that everything goes wrong. Uh, they end badly. I have yet to read a Russian novel with a purely happy ending. If there's an exception to that, Grace may know it. But they seem to have quite sad, or, or at the very best, maybe ambiguous endings. And I don't love hard or sad or ambiguous endings. Frankly, I find them annoying. Because when I'm reading, I'm reading for my own enjoyment. I want to be entertained. And so I like happily ever afters and that kind of thing. It's much more satisfying. But what we're learning is that Ezra is destined to end like a Russian novel. Uh, we're just going to get the spoilers out of the way. Uh, things maybe get a little bit better in Ezra 2, also known as Nehemiah. But Ezra ends on a sour note. And as always, it's because of a sin issue. Leave it to God's people to ruin a good thing. Sin is an ugly thing. Who can attest to that? Uh, we remember that occasionally, especially when somebody sins against us. Um, I don't know if we often think about how really ugly and insidious it actually is. It's unpleasant, and so we tend to sweep it under the rug if we can. Uh, or when we talk about sin, we like to talk about it as something vague and conceptual. Uh, but sin is actually quite practical. It is very real and it has real consequences. And I want to explore how we as God's people should respond to sin in ourselves or in others, because if you haven't noticed, sin happens. 
I have yet to spend a 24-hour span in my life without sinning at some point. Most of you know that if you look at the news or even just in your Facebook feed, right, uh, most of what you see uh, and what is newsworthy is some egregious sin somewhere. There is sin everywhere. So how do we respond to it, and how does it make you feel? Uh, Last week, I ended our service with a benediction out of 1 Peter which I thought was fitting because it echoes what Ezra had told the priests in chapter 8 when we got to that section. It reminded us that we are a chosen race and a holy people. Now, to be a holy people means that we are set apart. That's what holy means. You're set apart from the world. And being separate and keeping things in their proper categories is a major theme in Scripture. I mean, and we tend to think of it as almost maniacal, right? Like I had an aunt that couldn't handle like if the food on the plate at dinner time touched each other, like it like made her crazy, you know, like um, and 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 like you know, like that's why God provided us with those plates with the divide, you know, the dividers in them now. Um, but like, you know, you dig in the Old Testament, and, and we're told, you know, you're not even allowed to mix your fabrics. You know, you, the polyester is like an abomination. It's still an abomination, but it was even more an abomination back then, and. The idea is that that's a picture of God's people. You don't mix like and unlike. We are not the same as the world. And moreover, we're not even the same as what we were. We are different now. We are to be in the world and not of it. We are new creations and That was an encouraging note last week. It was good to remember that. And that was largely what Ezra was trying to impress on the Levites in that chapter, that they were new creations. You guys are holy to the Lord. You have been set apart to carry his treasure, not because of your merits, but because of God's mercy and grace. But when God's people don't act like God's people, that's very ugly because it means we've forgotten who we are. It's like we were talking about in Sunday school. It's a violation of the third commandment. We, we are taking his name, but not living like we belong to him. Sin is not fitting for a holy people. But the longer sin goes on, the harder it gets to fix. And the more advanced the sickness is, the stronger the cure must be. And so it's going to actually take us, I think, three weeks to go over this situation in the next couple of chapters because it's a big deal. These closing chapters will also teach us how to deal with sin. First, today we're going to look at how sin grieves our God, and then we'll look at what true repentance looks like beginning next week, and we're going to look at the consequences of sin in chapter 10. But today, I want us to meditate on what it means to be a holy race, and as a holy race, how do we respond to sin? Because that's what these chapters are talking about. We are a chosen race and a holy people. That is affirmed even in the New Testament, and that should mean something. Now, I think we need to clarify terms because that phrase, the concept of a holy race, has taken on some nasty connotations over the course of human history, has it not? Uh, The language of a chosen race has been used to justify a lot of bad things. Uh, Racism and slavery, world (laughs) conquest throughout history, the subjugation of people groups. Uh, But that is not what our God means by this. 
And I want us to have a biblical appreciation for what it means to be a holy people and a chosen race, because it is not a blank check to antagonize people. It is a gracious action by God that lays expectations on his people. It's an obligation to obedience. It means that the situation has changed because we have been bought at a price and we have to stop acting like we can live life on our own terms. Taking his name means living for him. Being a chosen race means we have to stop messing around. And we're going to see more of that as we keep going on. But all of this sort of starts with the initial discovery of the sin. Which is usually the ugliest part, isn't it? Because sin tends to fester. And the longer it festers, the more distasteful and revolting it becomes. So, like this week... I was giving Jason a hand with a project vacating an apartment, and it was kind of nasty, wasn't it? Uh, But for what it's worth, Georgia and I once moved into an apartment that had not been vacated. Uh, The girl had moved out and left everything behind, and the landlord, in this case Penn State University, uh, had never bothered to check on the situation. And so she left everything behind, including what had been a wet towel thrown on the bed kind of thing. Like we thought that she was still living in this thing. But then we opened the fridge. And you see things in the fridge that have been sitting here unnoticed for three months. I didn't know that milk turned gray. But it does if you let it sit long enough in the fridge, as it turns out. You know, you learn new things every day. It was gross. And what made it so gross was that it had been ignored for so long. And sin is like that. It festers and gets nastier the longer it is ignored. And the sin issue at the end of Ezra relates to the sin of intermarriage. In other words, God's holy chosen people, his set-apart ones, have corrupted themselves by marrying the locals. Now, that's going to sound strange to our American ears a little bit because the institution of marriage has become so loosely defined in our culture as to be almost meaningless. Uh, You can marry anybody. You can marry anything. You can marry any sex. You can be any sex. I've read stories of people marrying their dogs, trees, AI characters, even themselves, and in one case, a building. Marriage is also not regarded in our culture as anything super spiritual. Uh, I talked to a girl just a few weeks ago who was recently married, and I congratulated her, and I asked some normal questions, and then it kind of got slightly weird uh, as she explained that they did, oh, we did it so uniquely, and that's like, you're already like, oh, no. Uh, There was no efficient. Uh, She and her husband conducted the ceremony themselves with a small group of friends and family watching. And she said, oh, the family loved it. They all came up to us afterwards and said how unique it was. (laughs) Like unique is one word for it, I guess. Um, I wished them well, but like I didn't know you could get married by just declaring it like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. But apparently, you know, I guess whatever. But the point is that in, in our day and age, where the common slogan is that Love is love. Uh, The concept of intermarriage being a problem is not only alien, it's actually offensive to American ears, isn't it? Marriage is no one's business but mine, and you can't help who you love, right? But that's not what the Bible teaches. Marriage 
has been practiced in every culture in human history, but it was not created by man. It was God's idea. He created them male and female, and he brought them together for a purpose, and that was to more effectively serve him. Marriage was made by God for his own glory. And while he graciously allows even unbelievers to enjoy the benefits of marriage, he has pretty clear expectations of how his people should approach it. And what stands as kind of rule number one is that you only may marry within the covenant. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We're going to see more of why as the time goes on here. So the scandal begins soon after Ezra arrives in Jerusalem. And we know that Ezra, he's been called to teach in Jerusalem. Uh, we saw that the king had endorsed this mission, and he had not only endorsed it politically, he had backed this project financially. He's thrown a lot of money at it. Uh, he sent a kingly treasure with Ezra to Jerusalem. And as we wrapped up last week, we saw that the treasure had made it safely. Ezra had given the priests this charge to protect the treasure. He reminded them who they were, that they were holy, they were set apart. And at the end of the chapter, we saw they arrived safely. God had delivered them from the ambushes and the enemies. Interestingly, we were not told whether that meant that there was no ambushes or enemies. It could be that they had trouble, but that uh, they didn't face anybody they couldn't lick. Uh, maybe a few thieves regretted the attack. I don't know. Either way, they, they get to Jerusalem in one piece. They, the chapter ends with them counting out the gold and the silver. Everything gets weighed. Everything gets recorded and, and accounted for. And the chapter ends with joyous sacrifices to the Lord. And now you would think that Ezra could get down to the real work. In other words, the stuff that he was trained for. Because he's, again, he's here to teach. That's his main goal, right? And he had to do this weird job of playing the Brink security man, delivering stuff. But now he's there. He's here to teach. So one can assume that now that all the gold and silver is safely in the vaults, I can go set up my office, I can spread out my scrolls, and I can start writing my first sermon. And I'll be honest, I, I kind of... I've admitted this to some of you. I kind of hate the process of sermon writing personally. I, you know, I like preaching my messages more than I like writing them. Uh, but some guys enjoy that process and they like reading the commentaries and digging real deep. And like those are the good seminary students like Ezra. He's living the dream. Finally, this is what he has been preparing for. And just as he sits down, yet another problem comes up that seminary probably didn't prepare him for. A scandal that's brewing in Jerusalem, and it's about to rob Ezra of whatever joy he had in this moment. Looking again at verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, uh, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. We've known since chapter one uh, that the exiles didn't return to a completely empty land, right? Um, they say power abhors a vacuum, uh, so apparently to civilization. People live everywhere, um, we know that Judah had been reduced to something of a wasteland when Jerusalem was destroyed, but there's always somebody who's willing to fill the wasteland, who like looks at it and thinks, like, this is attractive, and decides to settle there. This is why people live in the desert or in the Arctic. 
That's why people dream of human settlements on the moon and things like this, right? Like people are weird. This is just the way we think. And so even though the Babylonians have leveled Jerusalem, people have moved into the area and there were lots of folks living in the countryside all around when they got there. And many of these people were the same people that Israel had conquered 1,500 years earlier. And that's why this list of the peoples of the land sounds so very familiar. Uh, it's the same perennial enemies of God's people that they've been dealing with for centuries. Now, it is one of the more true and obvious proverbs. It's in the scripture, but you know, even if scripture didn't say it, uh, you would kind of know it to be true that bad company corrupts good character. Uh, God's people, ever since they've arrived back in Jerusalem, have remained separate from the locals, or they were supposed to, uh, as much as possible. And they had some incentive to do so, partly because the locals had been actually hostile to the temple rebuild, as you may recall. Uh, these are the same folks who were trying to stop the whole project and were trying to tamp down the revival that was happening there. So not only were God's people expected to remain separate from the locals, it would have been something of a natural thing to do because they kind of hate you. <laughs> they're not on your team. They're not in your corner. Now, of course, not all of them were hostile and God doesn't turn people away. So when we were reading about them celebrating the first Passover and forever in chapter seven, we read that some of the non-Jews joined in. But even them, what made them distinct was that they had separated themselves. Verse 21 of chapter seven said that they had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. That's what made them distinct. They had separated themselves. In other words, they had converted. So that distinction has to be made clear. And, and it may seem like a side note, but again, it's important for us to state it loudly. God's kingdom in the Old Testament, as much as the new, is not an ethnic thing. What makes the Jews holy was not their Jewishness. They did not get a pass simply for having Jewish blood. What made them holy was that they belonged to God and were chosen by him, and therefore they were supposed to live like it. And anyone who was willing to follow the Lord and forsake their false gods and walk away from their old lives was welcomed into that covenant community, even in the Old Testament. That's the story of Rahab. She starts as a Canaanite prostitute, but she ends up in the lineage of Jesus. It's the story of Ruth, a Moabite, who was also ended up in, in Jesus' family line. And honestly, if you go back far enough, it's the story of Abraham, who was, after all, a Chaldean, a Babylonian, who God called apart. God has always called people out of their old ways, their old nations, and folded them into his family. That's how he rolls. And this stands out all the more clearly in the New Testament after Christ. So when you read the entire history of Acts and we see it at Pentecost and the fact that God specifically calls Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. So we affirm that in Christ there is no Jew and no Gentile. There are no nationalistic distinctions in the kingdom of heaven. So the Christian faith is about a holy nation, but it is not an ethnic thing. God's people have never been united by our blood. The only blood we have in common is the blood that Christ shed on Calvary. And so this list of nations that we read in verse 1, this is not some jingoistic or xenophobic hit list, right? The, the, the problem with these nations, it's not their ethnicity, not their bloodline. The problem is their practices. 
They're not bad news because of their ancestry. It's because of what they do. Uh, the Canaanites worshipped El and Asherah, the fertility cult. Uh, the Hittites worshipped Tarhunt, who was a, a weather and storm god. We know that the Egyptians had a whole pantheon led by Ra. They, were, they worshipped the sun. Uh, the, the Amorites worshipped Dagon, a, a fish-god hybrid. The Moabites worshipped Chemosh, who demanded human sacrifice. If bad company corrupts good character, this is not good company to keep. God would prefer his people not to hang out with those people. And yet, they are not only hanging out with the pagans, they've been taking the daughters of the pagans as their wives. For them and for their sons. And make no mistake, this is a very public sin. Because the accusation is not that they've been having secret flings with these women, is it? They're marrying them which means they're having weddings, publicly celebrating these unions, thus giving the imprimatur of respectability to their sin. They're raising families together. They're building homes together. They're essentially flaunting their sin, and they can't hide it, and they apparently don't feel like they even have to. And that's probably in large part of because of what, of what is reported in verse 2, that the leadership has led the way with this thing. The officials and the chief men, the political and the religious leadership, they're first in line to marry the unbelieving daughters of the land, and that sets the tone, and now just about everybody's doing it. And we know how this works in our own day. Like all trends, it starts off as something unthinkable, scandalous. And then it becomes kind of cool and edgy when some people do it. And then it's culturally tolerated. Then it's just generally kind of acceptable. And then it becomes mean to actually say anything about it. We just don't talk about it. And eventually everyone's doing it, and you're not even allowed to question it. In fact, you're weird if you don't do it. And I strongly suspect that that's what Ezra has walked into. So how does he take this news? I'll give you a hint. Not well. Verse 3 again. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Ezra seems upset. His dreams of coming here to teach these people is quickly becoming a nightmare um, you have to figure, to be a missionary somewhere, it is desirable to have some love for the people that you're going there to reach, right? Unless your name is Jonah, you should have some love for the people that you're trying to reach. But Ezra no sooner unpacks his bags than he realizes just how unlovely God's people are. This is not the picture he had in mind. It's not the picture I had in mind. You know, for weeks I've been describing this time as a time of revival for God's people over the last several, you know, decades really in Jerusalem. What's been happening in Jerusalem is nothing short of miraculous. And yet this is happening. And it's not just because these guys are fooling around with disreputable girls. It's not even just because they violated some obscure regulation. The problem is that they are settling into a mixed religious household and something will have to suffer. Either you will be drawn away from the woman you married 
or the more likely case is that you will be drawn away from God. This almost doesn't require analysis because I think we've all seen it. Our culture says you can't help who you love. So couples may ask hundreds of questions before hooking up or getting married. But your status with the God who made you is seldom more than an afterthought. And just as today, some will date outside the faith in the theory that they can reach this person for Christ. We call this missionary dating, right? I bet Ezra's facing some of that same mentality. Like, well, look, I only married her because it gives me greater influence over her. And over her family, you know, every time we're at the dinner, we can talk about these things. I take her to temple once a week, or at least every other week. And look, I only go to her pagan shrines to appease her and keep peace with the in-laws. And we want the kids to learn about both and make up their own mind. We've all heard this logic. The fact is, if the kingdom of God is not your priority and who you choose to marry, then you will live your life in conflict. You will be torn between the world and his kingdom every day of your life. Why? Because God made it to be this way. Sex and marriage mean something. It creates a real bond. God made it that way. And he knows that if we mishandle this gift, we will get burned. And that's why the enemy loves to attack marriage. He always has. It's a powerful gift and therefore in the wrong hands, it's a deadly weapon. And so Ezra tells us that he simply sat appalled. In Young's literal translation, it says he sat astonished. The Hebrew word can be translated a number of ways. Elsewhere where it shows up, it can be translated as desolated. Sometimes it's translated as deserted or ravaged or ruined or laid waste. In other words, Ezra feels gutted by this news. Now, it is fair to ask, is sin really so astonishing? Well, yes and no. Uh, No, in the sense that sin, and even this specific sin, is so very common. We've all seen it, and we're barely surprised by it. And yet it is always astonishing that we would turn away from the God who has done so much for us. And of course, we all sin, and we frequently sin in passionate moments of anger and lust and greed. Carol and I were talking about a truck that blew past me and didn't let me merge on the highway yesterday. I had a sin of passion in that moment and said choice words. But to consciously plan To marry outside the faith requires forethought. It requires commitment. In a sense, you actually solemnize your sin, baptizing it, if you will. You make it public and legal and give it the good housekeeping seal of approval. It's like asking God's blessing on your rebellion. And you become bound to this person in a very real sense, legally, physically, and emotionally. And so it is appalling. What else can you say? And this particular sin is something that only God's people can commit. 
I want to point that out because we're pretty good at pointing out the sin in the world, not without reason. There's plenty out there. But this sin is an internal problem. And it is rampant, much as it was in Ezra's day. And sin has consequences. Because of the way God has designed marriage to be, if you have an unbelieving wife, she will draw you away from God. And your kids will grow up conflicted. And as your kids walk away from God, your natural affection that God has put in you will perversely end up drawing your heart away from him as well. That is a horrible situation. It is, in fact, appalling. Now, we're going to discuss it further as the weeks go on. But for now, I want you to look at the actual text here. What what we're looking at here is how Ezra responds. Because Ezra, I believe, is an image of Christ in this scene. Why do I say that? Because he's the priest who came to serve and shepherd these people. Ezra is a foreshadow of Jesus, our ultimate high priest. And what is the fundamental job of a priest? It is to represent God's people before the throne of God. Ezra is beat up over this, even though he himself has done nothing wrong. And that's because his job is to represent God's people before God. He has to bear this before the face of the Almighty. That's a heavy burden. And in that capacity, Ezra is appalled and desolated. And that's Jesus' job, too. Jesus is our ultimate high priest, and that is what he did in his earthly ministry. I mean, we know that you read his high priestly prayer in John 17 and following. He acted as our high priest on Calvary when he died for our sins. But what you need to understand is the sheer magnitude of your sins that he came to die for. And what I think Ezra is teaching us, and what we read elsewhere, what we need to know is that your sin grieves him. He is appalled by your sin. It breaks his heart. And he's desolated by it. But you're only desolated for people that you care about. Ezra is heartbroken because these people are the people that he came to serve. And likewise, Jesus is heartbroken by the sins he came to die for. That's why he came to die. So I don't say these things to bury you in guilt. I say it so that you have a bigger view of your sin, because the bigger you see your sin, the bigger the cross will become. If Ezra is this grieved by the sins of his people, then Jesus must be infinitely more grieved. But unlike Ezra, he has the power to do something about it. And that's what the gospel is about, isn't it? Your great, sinless high priest came and offered the sacrifice that you could not, and he did it on your behalf, not in spite of his grief for your sin, but because of it. The gospel in this passage can be seen, actually, in how Ezra's grief leads us back to the throne of grace. Because I want you to look at what happens as Ezra grieves, beginning in verse 4. 
Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt is mounted up to the heavens. I'm choosing to stop just with that first opening verse of the prayer today, not because it sounds like a happy ending. I know it doesn't. But what I want you to appreciate in this scene is that Ezra not only grieves the sins of God's people, he teaches others to grieve in the process. Others gather around him and learn to grieve from him. But more importantly is what he does after that in that final verse. What's just as important is not, it's what, he, it's what he doesn't do and it's what he does. He doesn't go and yell at people. He doesn't go and break things. He doesn't despair and go home. What does he do? He prays. He comes before the Father and he comes bearing as the priest the burden of the sins of God's people. He comes bearing the burden of shame and guilt. But the point is that he takes it to God. He is ashamed of the sin, but where else can he go? Where else can we go? It's kind of like Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The sin exposed in Ezra 9 threatens to undo this entire revival and make the rest of this book, the first eight chapters, virtually meaningless. By rights, God should send them all right back to Babylon or kill them. But instead, he graciously sends them a priest. He knew this was going to happen. He sends them a priest to teach them to grieve for their sin. And who ultimately brings and leads them to the throne of grace. Just see the contrast between the leaders who lead the people into sin and the leaders who take them back to the throne of grace. There is no sensible response to your worst sins except to grieve and go back to Christ because Jesus didn't just play the priest once. He's still doing this. We know that because of what the book of Hebrews tells us. We are told that he's at the Father's right hand, grieving our sin, but also interceding for us before the Father because his sacrifice was enough to cover even the worst of them. Your sin is offensive. It is appalling, in fact. But Jesus died for it. And no church can expect revival if we just keep wallowing in it. So we're going to look at the details of Ezra's prayer next week. But for now, I want you to learn from Ezra, who points to Christ. Learn to grieve your sin. So much of the time we are desensitized to the depth of our own sin and the sin around us. But we need to learn to grieve our sin again. To be astonished. To be appalled and to be desolated and to mourn for our own sin and mourn for the sins in our church and mourn for the sins of the church globally or in America. God's people are a mess. We know that. And we have every one of us presumed on God's grace. You know it and I know it. The difference is probably that we haven't been exposed yet like these people were. But the proper response to sin is to be ashamed, but then to take it to Christ. A holy race 
will always go back to a holy God who receives sinners. Because our holiness is not defined by us, but what unites us. And what unites us is not our blood, but his. So yes, be appalled and grieve and mourn your sin. Take your sin seriously. Become resensitized to it. Learn to grieve as Jesus grieves, but then come back to the throne of grace. Because Ezra says, I am ashamed to do this, but what is he doing? He's doing it. Take all of that guilt and shame and bring your blushing face back to the throne of grace. Where else can you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? You have a better priest than Ezra, and he listens even to deliberate sinners, casual sinners, very public sinners, and he listens to them and he intercedes for them. Big sinners need a big savior, and that's what we have. And as your view of your sin grows, the cross of Christ should grow in direct proportion to the size of it. And sin might still have consequences, as we're going to see, but God receives repentant sinners because his goal is not to destroy his people, but to restore them. That's why he sent Ezra, and that's why he sent Jesus. And that's good news for sinners like us. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we come before you, a broken people. Lord, maybe it's not the sin specifically of intermarriage, but Lord, how many ways have we found of mingling ourselves with the world and looking like the world? How many ways have we compromised this week? We are your people, but we don't always look like it. We don't even want to look like it. God, forgive us. But we thank you, Lord, that we know better than Ezra, that we can come back to the throne of grace and that you will hear us, Lord, and that in our shame, in our own astonishment, even in our, in our blushing, we have nowhere else to turn and you will receive us. That is the promise of the gospel. So we thank you, Lord, for sending Ezra to convict these people but also to point them back to the throne of grace. And we thank you for sending Jesus, who not only went back to the throne of grace, who brought the perfect sacrifice so that we could follow him in. Teach us to do that with our sin this week, every day, and going forward. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.